Let's pray. Let's pray and let's go. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we trust you always. For though we may be lost and in the shadow of death, we will not be afraid because we know that you will never leave us to face our troubles all alone. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, you should have a new sheet in front of you. Um, you know, last week we sort of buzzed through everything, and that's, you know, that's okay. It's, always not, it's not always best, but uh, it is what it is. We didn't have a whole lot of time. So uh, what I want to do this week is I just want to sort of hone in and focus on one verse from last week. Uh, if you look at the top of your outline, though, let's, just, let's spend just a minute reviewing where we were. You remember Pastor Bruzek gave you uh, that very helpful outline on you know, Eden and chaos and alone and unloved, and then the four echoes of a voice from N.T. Wright, things that draw people into the church, beauty, community, spirituality, and justice, and how when people come in contact with those things, then they begin to embody again um, what was intended in Eden. So he gave you that. That was the big handout. And we're now trying to fill in the gaps from Philippians. Philippians, of course, why is Philippians a good book for us to look at? It's a church that works. Exactly. It's a church that works. So people are always saying, you know, they run conferences all around the world saying, here's how to run a church that works. Thank you. This goes to Russia. Karenette, okay. Should get back to Carol Holter. Um, if you have a couple bucks, toss that in. Uh, people run conferences all the time that say, we can show you how to make a church work. In fact, Pastor Bruzek and I gave lectures about a year ago, and the title of the conference was The Successful Church. Um, that was interesting in light of all that had happened, uh, <laughs> that they made us the keynotes. <laughs> Don't you think? It was very interesting. <laughs> Poetic justice might not get all the way there, uh, but that was very interesting, to say the least. Yes, right. Um, but here's the good news about the scriptures. The scriptures have some churches that don't work. What do you think of when you think of New Testament churches that don't work very well? Yeah, Corinthians, right? He starts off the first chapter, and he goes after people. I hear there's dissension among you, and why are you arguing? And Chloe's people told me you don't all get along. And then there are some churches that are sort of neutral, and then, of course, there are churches that work. Philippians is a church, I think, that works very well. So if we could sort of say, hey, we want a model church to look at, it might be Philippians. But look at your outline there, where we are. And I sort of breezed through this last week because we were trying to make up time. And uh, since it's after 1030, I'll breeze through it again. Where are we? The troubled church in a troubled world. I don't think there's anyone in here that thinks that the church isn't troubled. Okay? If you think the church is great right now and all is fine and there's no battles, um, you haven't turned on the TV lately. But the troubled church in a troubled world. Say that again? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, we'll talk about the new monasticism later. Uh, the troubled church in a troubled world. Ecumenism has lost its way. Now, I find this very interesting. Uh, it's, well, who's the best at ecumenism right now? Not the Lutherans. Who do you think is the best at ecumenism right now? Probably the Catholics are. Yeah, that's exactly right, which is strange because that's not how we classify Catholics. Oftentimes, though, what we struggle with is we talk a lot about people. And we talk a lot about our differences. We don't always talk about where there's common ground. Thankfully, I think our new bishop, Matt Harrison, uh, has some desire to do that. But ecumenism has lost its way. Denominations, and I told you last week there are 30,000-plus denominations, are crumbling. 
as tags become more and more meaningless. And I told you last week, at some point the church will break down, I think, in terms of people who are sacramental and non-sacramental. The sacrament or sacramental is very appealing to postmoderns. Why? So who said that? Gives them order? Good. Why else are the sacraments very appealing? Yeah, the Greek word for sacrament is mysterion. It's a mystery, meaning you can't quite figure it all the way out. What else? What do, what do uh, postmoderns want? They want something they can touch. And as the vicar told you this morning, the road to Emmaus is the example par excellence. Jesus isn't absent, but he's now present in a new way. He's present in bread and he's present in wine. Who's in charge and who's to blame? And I would propose to you as we talk about that, that might be, talk about this, that might be the most um, difficult question to answer. If there's one question that plagues the Lutheran Church today that has not been figured out for over 150 years, it's that question. Who's in charge and who's to blame? Who bears authority? What responsibility comes with that? Which means it's really a question of the office of the ministry. And we've talked about this for weeks. Interestingly, we're going to talk about it again today because it comes up in Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're all fearful of being alone and unloved. That was part of the vicar's sermon today. I mean, just listen to the text from the gospel. What do they say to Jesus as it starts to become night? Stay with us, for the day is far spent, right? What they, what they want is they want companionship. And what else bugs you theologically? There are plenty of things that bug you theologically, and we don't need to go into all of those. But everybody has something that bugs them at one time or another. So the question is, how can we come free of all that? How can we come free of um, ecumenism losing its way? How can, we come, how can we come free of denominational tags meaning really nothing? If you ask a 20-year-old what denomination are you, they'll look at you cross-eyed. They might tell you what church they go to, but they don't affiliate themselves with a specific denomination. Who's in charge? Who's to blame? We'll look at St. Paul, and why are we, and, and all of us are fearful of being alone and unloved, so how do we have companionship with one another between pastor and people and people and people, okay? So uh, if you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to give you a string of Bible verses to look up here, but Philippians chapter 1 will be the place we'll start. Anybody have a Bible at that back table? Martha? Oh, you forgot. I know. Who would have thought to bring a Bible to Bible study? I know. <laughs> I know you do. I know. That's why I love you. Actually, there are some right down here if you need one. Nope. Coffee. The important stuff. Take one of those to your... Okay, so uh, Philippians chapter 1. That's good. The scriptures do say hear the word. Okay. Got some literalists among us. That's good. Now, you remember from Philippians chapter 1, verse 8. Okay? Philippians chapter 1, verse 8. And I told you last week, we sort of started with the context of Philippians. Uh, St. Paul says some very nice things. In fact, if you flip your page over, the outline I gave you, flip to page 2, and I told you what St. Paul says. So St. Paul says some very nice things. He says, one, I'm a slave of Christ. He says, you all are saints. He also says, hey, I hope there's grace among you and peace. And peace here is cosmic peace. 
And then he says, I offer up a Eucharist for all of you. I'm thankful for all of you. And more than that, I'm grateful because you all have koinonia. In what? In the gospel. But then St. Paul launches into this whole thing which really gives a dramatic shift to the text. He has all these nice things to say. All of these, as I've showed you on the second page of your outline, all of these Eden things to say. This is what Eden is like. Everybody is a slave of Jesus. Everybody's a saint. There's grace among us. There's cosmic peace. Why? Because we have Eucharistic fellowship, which means there's koinonia in the gospel, Christ applied. But all of a sudden, St. Paul gives a dramatic shift to the text. If you look at verse 1-8, would somebody read that for us? Good. Now, I find that fascinating. This is a congregation that works. One, you have all these great Eden things. Everybody's back together. Everybody's happy. And suddenly, St. Paul shifts and said, For God is my witness how I yearn for all of you. And the Greek word there for yearn, look at the first page of your outline, is splachnon, which is a very powerful word, especially in the Gospels. Jesus uses it all the time. For instance, when Lazarus dies, it says, you know, his heart was moved. When the widow's son at Nain dies, it says his heart is moved. The, work there is, the word there is splachna or splachnon. And this is a very, again, like it's a very powerful word. Just look at the definition. It's yearning from your bowels, from your intestines, the heart, the lungs, the liver, etc. The bowels were regarded as the seat of the more violent passions, such as anger and love, but by the Hebrews as the seat of the tender affections especially kindness, benevolence, compassion. Hence, it is our heart, tender mercies, or a heart in which mercy resides. Now, what is indicated by St. Paul's longing for his congregation? Yeah, he's lonely, right? He's lonely. What else? Anything else? What else is indicated? Yes. Yes, he wants... He wants commonality in belief, right? What else is indicated by St. Paul's yearning? Yes, Karen. Yes, exactly. And actually, that's if we can stop there, that's what I'd like to talk about. I'd like to pose the question, you know, why is it, as you see there, that Paul is yearning this way for his congregation? What is it? Is it simply that he's in prison and he's sort of down in the dumps and he feels alone and unloved? Or does it also say something about his relationship with his congregation? I think it does. I think it says something about the latter, his relationship with his people. Because he doesn't write that way to the church in Corinth. Right? In fact, in Corinth, he's like, what the is going on over there? But to the people in Philippi, he says, how I yearn for you. The deepest, this is Christ's yearning. It's not Christ-like, it's Christ yearning. I have the deepest amount of compassion and love and desire to be with you. So why is it that St. Paul, their pastor, can say this to his people? Okay? So let's start there. Open your Bibles. You've got a range. I'm going to give you about 12 Bible verses to look up. But start right here at Hebrews chapter 13. In fact, just raise your hand. I want to assign these so we can sort of clip through them because we only have 20 minutes. And next week, um, the rector from Siberia will be here. So I want to give him a full hour. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17. Who's, Dave's got that? 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17. Who's willing to read that? Okay. This is Callaher. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. Yonker. Philippians 1, 27. 
Eric, thank you. Galatians 6.10. Thank you, Ted. And John 15.11. Who's willing to do that? Thank you very much. Okay. So what is indicated by St. Paul's yearning for his congregation? What do you know about the people? And what do you know about him? Let's just read through these and see what we find out. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Dave, is that you? Good. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Let them do this with joy. Let St. Paul be pastor with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no, of no advantage to you. The word for joy there is the same word St. Paul originally used, which is kara, which, you know, you know the root is, or is, forms the root for Eucharist, grace, joy. What is it from that text, obey your leaders and submit to them, what is it that causes a leader to have joy? When you follow, right? When you have a proper relationship with your leader. This is like, um, you hear, <laughs> I just heard someone, yeah, I'm going to say someone from my own family, but that would, well, now I've already said it. Okay, someone from my own family say, uh, yeah, we were here. I said, well, where's your mom? Well, mom's off visiting someone else. I said, so you're not together? No, real honestly, she needed a break from us, and we needed a break from her. <laughs> okay? Now, let me ask you, is that a relation? What's that? Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> it wasn't me who said it. <laughs> Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Yes, it does in some instances. Yes, absence should make the heart grow fonder, but if you have a bad relationship, a relationship that's out of whack, absence might not make the heart grow fonder. In fact, might like your time away a little too much. Now, if that was the case with St. Paul, what would he say? Thank God I'm in prison. <laughs> yeah, because being with you is worse than this. Now, that's not what St. Paul says. What's indicated by St. Paul's desire? He wants to be with them because his ministry is a joy. Why is his ministry a joy? Because they're obedient and submissive. Okay, Obedient and submissive. And you have to play those off against power and force. Obedience simply means you come behind someone else. And as I told you a couple weeks back, the word for submit there, and we'll look at this in just a minute, is the same word from, from Ephesians 5. Submit means... You remember? It's a military term. This is very important because you get brides who say, I'm not going to say submit. And you get, yeah, you get, or you get brides who say, I'm not going to obey. That's not what it means. Not in the sense we think. What does submit mean here? It means, very literally, be protected. I showed you this. In the ancient world, you had militaries like this, 10 across and 10 deep. And they go into battle this way. Who was up here at the front line? The young guys or the old guys? The old guys, the most experienced fighters. You don't just send the young guys out who have no training. You put the most experienced guys at the front of the pack. And all the young guys were told to submit. Yeah, run. Okay. You know, Kovic, just when I think you're doing something good, you go off and do something like that and totally redeem yourself. The young guys are told to submit. It doesn't mean when the old guy says, make me a cup of coffee, you say, okay, sir, I'll make it, although that may help. What it means is you are protected. Let the old guys go in first, the mature guys go in first, because they know what's cooking, and they will be able to figure their way through all of this. You then, as a younger guy, 
are protected. This is why the scriptures talk about maturity and immaturity. They talk about the old and the young. Just go read 1 John sometime. 1 John, all the languages, old men bring up young men. You know, some of you are little children. Some of you are young adults. Some of you are old men. There's ranking in the scriptures and authority in the scriptures and even hierarchy in the scriptures, but these are not bad things. And that's a relationship which Paul has already experienced. He's their pastor, and they are his people. And because they willingly obey and submit, what happens? Paul's life is a life of joy, and he actually wants to come back someday. Yes? Yep. Yeah, exactly. This is the. If this is you in the church, someday you got to be up here. This is the point. I mean, this is this is the great sadness of the church sometimes, which is older people should bring, be bringing up young people. I want someone I can say to my daughters, grow up and be like that person, because someday you people who are spiritually mature are going to be dead. This is how the church works. And young people are going to have to come up, and they're going to have to be the leaders. If they've never seen anybody else do it, what happened? The church is chaos. Right? church is chaos. This is just how life works. I, I tell the women's Bible study all the time. What do you learn more as you get older? Your dad and your mom were actually right. <laughs> yeah, they were right. And I haven't, I mean, I, I, I'm very respectful. I love my parents. But I realize now that I have kids how right my parents were. When I was a kid, I was horrible. I was way back here like, forget you, I'm not ever going to be up here. Now guess what? I'm up here whether I like it or not. And what happens? You look back at your parents and you say, whoa, my old man got it right. Yeah. No. It doesn't mean age. Sometimes it does. The presumption in Scripture is that age equals spiritual maturity. As you know, in real life, that's not always the case. The presumption in Scripture, though, is the older you become, because what happens as you become older and older if you're in the church? I'm not talking about non-believers. Exactly right. It presumes, yeah, it presumes you've had more touches, more touches at the altar, more touches at the Eucharist. This is like anything else. You're a baseball, I played baseball in college. You know, you're a much better hitter if you go to batting practice and swing the bat 500 times than if you swing the bat 20 times. It presumes with age you've had more Eucharistic touches. And that changes you. You heard that in the prayers this morning. Join us to your resurrected life. The more you come in contact with Christ, the more spiritually mature you should become. Yeah, the more, or Luther. I mean, 1532. That's, I mean, those of you who are, you know, Luther fanatics, that's almost divinely inspired. Um, nobody laughed at that. I was, actually. I was serious. <laughs> It's good they didn't laugh because I was serious. You know, Luther, as Luther gets older, people say, hey, Luther's almost like the Holy Spirit at that point. He can speak without ear. So anything from about 1527 on is considered very, very reliable. And this morning, Luther says in 1530 or 1532, um, the more you touch the flesh and blood of Jesus, he actually makes you divine. I think that was from his commentary on John, right? John 6, which is fascinating because Luther, Lutherans always say Luther didn't believe John 6 was sacramental. Read the commentary, okay? Yeah, could be. Uh, I actually like him better at that point than the later stuff. Okay, so obey and submit. Now, who's got 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17? Okay, go ahead and read that for us. Good. Everybody hear that? Can you read it one more time with a little, pretend you're acting now. This is like the school musical. Go all the way. 
Good. So, what else adds to Paul's joy? He's what, yes, a couple things. One, the people are, the people are obedient to Paul, and more than that, he just doesn't want a congregation that's all mad at each other but obedient to him. They're obedient to him, and they are united with each other. How are they united with each other? Do you not know that the bread we break is a koinonia in the body of Christ? And then St. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians, because we all share one loaf, we are one body. Okay, we are one body. So why is Paul yearning? They're obedient to him, and they're united with each other eucharistically. Do you see how, when the vicar said this morning, this really puts things in perspective. The Eucharist is everything. He's right. The Eucharist is everything. We can all be nice to each other and have a beer every once in a while, but unless we're joined by the Eucharist, we will never succeed. Who's got the next one? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. Thank you. Good. Because they're united eucharistically, because they're all obedient to Paul, therefore they agree. The Greek for agree, though, this is very interesting, says literally that you say the same thing. You ever thought about it that way? The church, in the church, you all are meant to say the same thing? How often does that happen? You ever been to a voters meeting? <laughs> You're all meant to say the same thing. So this is the way Jesus had structured the church, and this is why Paul is so excited to see them again. They're obedient to him. They, they're protected by their pastor. They're united to each other by the Eucharist. Therefore, they're all saying the same thing. I want you all to agree, brothers. Yes. Yes, we do. Good. That's the starting point. That's the starting point. The same thing. The Greek word is... Homo logeo, which means to say what Christ says. And this is, uh, this is most basically done with the word amen. Okay? Amen just means, yep, that's right, that's what Christ says. Yes. That's right. I agree. And why is that? Because what's not in every denomination? See how this all works? This is the center point. Not about Paul, it's not about them, it's about Christ present in the Eucharist. If you don't have the Eucharist, all of a sudden everything falls apart. Yeah. Well, I think if you ask some of your, uh, well, for instance, I had a grandmother who was a Methodist, and she would say, as would her church, that Christ is not present in the Eucharist. So that's my point doesn't mean they're not caught up in the thanksgiving of Jesus. What it means is they wouldn't confess that their body and blood present on the altar. Yes. Yeah, right? Yep. Yep. I'll save those comments for another time. Thank you. I agree. The observation is perfect. In fact, lots of people come to us and say, hey, it's no different. Karin, help us. I got five minutes. I got lots of verses. Yep. Yeah, well, we've got some questions to ask at some point, right? Philippians 1.27, who's got it? Thank you. Good. So because you all agree in saying the same thing, you stand together. Who's got the next one? Galatians 6, verse 10. Thank you. Yeah, this is the natural consequence of the Christian life. If you're obedient to Paul, united at the Eucharist, agree on everything... Stand together, therefore, what are you going to do? 
Therefore, they will do good. This sounds something like huh, acts of mercy, words of witness, and care of the soul. Words of witness, you say the same thing. Acts of mercy, care of soul. You do good for others, especially those of the household of faith. John 15, 11. Why does all this happen? Uh, let me keep going. Do you ha let me keep going in just a second. Keep going. Who's got John 15, 11? Yes. Yes, so that your joy may be full. The Greek word for full is pleroma, which means overflowing. Imagine what it would be like, and we're getting close, where the congregation, this congregation, would be a congregation, not where we just say, wow, there's a lot of joy there, but where joy would be spilling over. What would happen to that joy? It would spill over and go someplace like down the streets of Wheaton, right? I mean, this is what the world is after. The world is lonely and unloved. They're upset, they're angry, they're resentful, they don't have any joy. What Christ wants is for our joy to be complete so that it spills over into other areas of life. How does that happen? It has to happen this way. Okay? This is why Paul wants back with his people. This is why Paul wants to go see him again. Now, in the last eight minutes, I want to ask the question, what does this presuppose about the structure of Paul's congregation? And this is a, this is a permanent, uh, pertinent question because we need to think about that as well. But we know what's indicated by Paul's yearning. They're obedient, they're united, they agree, they stand together, they do good, their joy is complete. But what does this presuppose about the structure of Paul's congregation? Same thing, would some people look these up for me? Isaiah 22. Oh, come on, don't be shy. Thank you. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. You can read twice. Thank you. 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. Dave, thanks. Ephesians 5, 22 to 32. Craig, can you? And uh, Titus 3, 1 to 11. Lindsay? Or Beth? Somebody over there? You guys can arm wrestle for it. What does this presuppose about the structure of Paul's congregation? Somebody who has Isaiah 22... Verses 20 to 24, read that for us, would you? Good, thank you. So this man is being put by the Lord to serve the people of Jerusalem. And how does the Lord describe his relationship with the church, with Jerusalem, with Israel? You will be, what does it say? He shall be, this is verse 21, I will commit your authority a father. So partly what's happening here is in the scriptures, the relationship between pastor or priest and people is father and child. And you know this, if you got kids, I mean, it is Mother's Day, I hope they're all nice to you, but if you have kids, there are sometimes when you go to work and you can't wait to get home and see your kids, and there are sometimes when you go to work and you say, I wish I had something else to do because I want to stay away a little longer, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. This is real life stuff, father and child. This is the relationship between Paul and the Philippians. Who's got 1 Corinthians 12? Yes, Eric. In the church, and we've looked at this before, so this is old this is old hat, in the church there is a hierarchy. And first there are apostles. What is Paul? He is an apostle. He holds rank over the rest of the church and over his own people. 1 Timothy chapter 5, who's got that one? Yes. Good. So Paul, as pastor, deserves, what does it say? Double? Come on now, I know it's hard for you. Double honor, exactly. This is just out of the Bible, okay? Homologate, oh, same what Jesus says. 
deserves a double honor. Okay, Ephesians chapter 5. This is a little longer one, but somebody who is willing to read 10 verses, go ahead and do it. Thank you. Good, thank you. Uh, So this, you know, first and foremost, it shows you another relationship in the scriptures, which is husbands and wives. But then St. Paul says, lo, I tell you a mystery. In the Latin, I tell you a sacrament. I am referring to Christ and the church. Now, you might just say, wow, that's great. This is how Jesus interacts with his church. He's the giver, the church is the receiver. There's a relationship of obedience and submission. But what do we say every Sunday when I stand before you and forgive your sins? In the stead, meaning in the place of and by the command of Jesus. Likewise, St. Paul says, I stand in the person of Christ. Or as you hear it in the Latin, I stand in persona Christi meaning the relationship that Jesus has with his church is also a relationship between pastor and church, in the stead and by the command of Jesus. Now, who's got Titus 3? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Uh, The letter to Titus is called the pastoral epistle. Do you know why it's called the pastoral epistle? Not because St. Paul writes pastorally, but because he's writing to a pastor. Exactly. So he says to Titus... Protect your people and tell them to be protected. Tell your people to submit to you. Why? The very end of the text, I hear there are dissensions among you. Dissension is ultimately at its core chaos. Unless we establish this relationship, everything is chaotic and there is no order. And if there's no order, then it's not Eden. Now let me ask you one more question and then we'll go. In the scriptures, who's the chief apostle? If you had to guess, Peter is. In fact, I, I was stunned by it today in the, uh, in the gospel reading. Even there, you notice in the gospels, whenever the disciples get called, Peter always gets named first. And in the scriptures to be named, wherever you're named, that shows something. But it says here in the, in the gospel for today, uh, they gathered them together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, has appeared to Peter. So Peter is the first head of the church, but obviously when Peter dies, someone else needs to be put in place. And I've given you here Irenaeus against the heresies. Now here's why Irenaeus is so helpful. It's at the very bottom of your first page. Irenaeus wrote this in 108 A.D. Okay? And you see there, Irenaeus was a student of Polycarp. Polycarp lived from 69 to 155. And Polycarp was a student of St. John the Evangelist. So here's the thing. Whether or not you believe the structure that Irenaeus is going to propose, the bottom line is he gets this sort of second hand from Polycarp who got it from John. Exactly. And, here, and, don't, and don't say, oh, that doesn't matter. All of you in your life say, well, I had a teacher way back when who said to me, right? You all do this. I do it too. So it's the same for the scriptures. St. Paul lived from 5 to 67 A.D. and wrote this letter to the Philippians around 60. Now, the point of all this is, you know, we often say when we talk about structure in the church, that may have been a biblical thing, but that hasn't been in the history of the church. Au contraire. It actually has been in the history of the church since right after the time of Jesus and right after the time of the apostles. You have to get to almost, well, not almost, you have to get to the 16th century before the structure changes. And I just want to show you here, this is one of the earliest writings in the church, 180 A.D., what St. Irenaeus says about replacing someone and what office he takes. So look down there. 
This structure, advocated by Irenaeus, student of Polycarp and so also student of St. John, was highly episcopal, meaning it had an order, but certainly was the kind adopted by St. Paul and presupposed by this Philippian community. Why do they have so much joy? They had a structure that worked. Irenaeus says, the blessed apostles then, having founded and built up the church, who founded and built the church? The apostles, committed into the hands of Linus the office of the episcopate, of the bishopric. Actually, at that time, he was the, starts with a P, ends with an Ope. He was the Pope, exactly. You've ever heard the Catholics talk about the list of popes? It's Peter and then Linus. Because remember, at that time, there weren't 30,000 denominations. There was one. With that church, this is Irenaeus, because of its superior origin, this is the early church, all the churches must agree, that is, all the faithful in the whole world. Okay? Now, here's the obvious point. Today, do we agree or disagree with that structure? We disagree. But I would propose to you the reason why St. Paul yearns so desperately for his people is for all of these reasons, but also because they have a structure that works. He can be pastor and they can be people. The church is not a democracy. The church is the church. And this is the way the church has always operated, and part of the reason why they were so successful is because they did things the Jesus way. So we've got to think about all that as we go forward. Do you have any questions, even though we are seven minutes over? Yes. Right. Oh, agreed, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Okay? All right. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.